Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. If you would be opening your Bibles to 2 Timothy, the second chapter, in your pew Bible, that'll be page 1057 in your pew Bible, and we will be studying in just a few moments from that text. I've been asked to announce this. Uh, George Smithson, the cousin of the late Thax Jackson, had open-heart surgery at St. Thomas. He's had some problems, but is some better. He would appreciate cards and prayers. He went to, the, to school at Mount Juliet and now lives in Clarksville. His address is H32 in the critical care unit of St. Thomas Hospital. H32 of the critical care unit of St. Thomas Hospital. Also, uh, Bud Lambert will have no sessions here at Mount Juliet tomorrow due to him having the flu. So if you will, make note of those two things. It has been a wonderful day, Mount Juliet. We are so thankful that our youth have made it home safely. Over 30 uh, enjoyed a youth rally event this past weekend in Gatlinburg, and they left Friday afternoon, been in sessions Friday evening, Saturday, and this morning. And it's the Challenge Youth Conference, and we are thankful for their safe return and for them taking the advantage of that that's before them. And for each adult that went and helped in that way, uh, we are very grateful for that. We're also thankful for all those that helped with the Mount Juliet Healthcare Service this afternoon. That continues to be a wonderful ministry. Wayne Williamson continues to do a, a wonderful job with that, and we are thankful for all that goes on there. A young man was writing in an English composition class, and as everyone was asked to write a story of some event that took place last week, and then they were asked to get up and read that story before the class. And so as this young man began reading his story, it began by, Father fell in the well last week. Well, the teacher was startled and interrupted and said, Well, Johnny, how's your father doing? Is he okay? said, I guess he is. He stopped crying for help on Tuesday. <laughs> now, you know, when we think about that, could that be the way we react when someone falls away from the Lord's church? When they fall back into the world for whatever reason, discouragement, false doctrine, entangled in the cares of the world? How many of us have been guilty of saying, well, you know, at first I felt really guilty, and it, at first there might have been signs where they were crying out for help, but, you know, they haven't done that lately, so I guess that's where they're going to stay. This year, I hope every one of us makes the very best effort that we can make to see how many souls that we can bring back to the Lord in 2006. When we think of coming home in 2006, there's no greater joy that we could have than to see those that once were right in their relationship with God coming back home in that relationship. Throughout this year, you'll be asked to collect names, and we'll spend time praying for individuals. We'll spend time, for those of us that know those individuals, going to them and encouraging them to let this be the year that they come back to God. Let's make sure that we're doing all we can do to encourage, to pray, and to do so in the right way. Two weekends from now, we'll have the Calling and Caring Workshop. 
where we'll have the opportunity to learn in great detail what studies have revealed about why people fall away, but also how they are brought back. And so I hope that if you have the opportunity to be a part of that weekend, I hope that you'll go ahead and sign up and do that, not for the seminar's sake. Please understand, we're not talking about to make a seminar successful. We're talking about for the sake of leaving that seminar and putting those things that we've learned in practice to do the best that we can do to change the eternal destination of some souls of people that we know and that we love. There are many passages we could go to to think about how could we address this situation? How could we address these people? When I lay my Bible open, I see 2 Timothy, the second chapter through the fourth chapter in one opening. Just as a note of introduction, I, it was quite intriguing to me that we could read back earlier in, in 2 Timothy, the second chapter in verse 17, he's talking about the message will spread like cancer. It's Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. And he talks about how that these individuals have fallen into a false doctrine of not believing that there was a resurrection and that 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 false doctrine was spreading like cancer. In other words, it was corrupting the spiritual lives of others. And so Paul's writing in the second chapter and he's dealing with this. And the text that we're going to study tonight is where we come on down a few more verses and he's saying, this is what young man... Timothy should have in mind when he goes to those individuals. So tonight we'll study some things that we ought to have in mind when we approach individuals. But I want you to also note, in other words, from that we see that some people fall away because of false doctrine. There were people that used to worship here every Sunday that now they worship somewhere else where the truth in its fullness is not taught. And maybe we say, how can that happen? The most important thing we need to understand at this time is that it's happening. And so what can we do about it? But also at the same opening, I look down at the fourth chapter, and I look at verse 10, and this is where Paul writes about Demas in the fourth chapter in verse 10. For Demas has forsaken me. And you say, well, why did Demas leave the Lord? This time it wasn't for false doctrine. Notice, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. You see, this time it wasn't false doctrine, it was the cares of the world, and, and the very thing that he cared about was things that were in the world. Maybe it was materialism, maybe it was lust, maybe it was popularity that he could gain, not being a Christian that he could not otherwise gain. Whatever it was, he saw something that the world offered that could not be held as one maintained a right relationship with God. And you can imagine those moments where Demas must have struggled with that to think, am I going to leave the Lord? Am I going to leave the side of the great apostle Paul? And I'm going to, am, will I stop this work? Because we read back earlier in the scriptures, Colossians the fourth chapter, he was a faithful servant. He was listed right there with Luke as one of the faithful servants. But yet now, he's gone through that decision-making process. He's gone through that being allured away. And he finds himself completely away from the Lord forsaken Paul, forsaking the Lord. You see, we could list a lot of reasons why folks fall away. But tonight, let's look and say what, see what Paul had to say to Timothy about what we should keep in mind when we approach these individuals. Let's begin reading verse 23. We're in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, and we're going to begin reading at 23. He says, Paul, the older man... The older preacher says to the younger preacher, 
but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captivity by him, to do His will. As we look at that phrase in 24, and the servant of the Lord must. And so we take that and we key off that as we look back to verse 23 and 24. The first thing we could say is the servant of the Lord must not strive with other people. One of the things that perhaps would be good for us to learn from the medical community is that when an individual has hurt themselves, and that's what falling away does spiritually. It's harming their spiritual life. One of the things that we do not need to do is go in and create an atmosphere of strife, but instead we ought to go in with a compassionate heart and humility that says, what can I do to help you at this point to get you back to proper health? Can you imagine someone in an emergency room, before they would help take the person back to a proper state of health, drilling them about all the things they must have done wrong to get into the state that they are at the present time. You know, recently, many of you have sent cards and offered prayers uh, on behalf and to my father uh, during the time that he is recuperating from a broken ankle. I happened to be with him the day that he broke his ankle. We were back walking our property line on our farm. And you know, with this fresh on my mind, I can't imagine if you can get in your mind how your adrenaline is pumping and when you see a foot that is turned completely at the five o'clock position, it just didn't look right. And so we rushed him as quick as we could to the, to the mercy room. And even as they were coming, helping getting him out of the truck, those that were working around emergency rooms on a daily basis were talking among themselves. I heard them whispering to each other, saying things like, I've never seen anything like this. This is unbelievable. Can you imagine the emergency room doctor coming in as he prepares to set the foot back into the proper position, but before he touched it, he'd say, what'd you do? Ah, so you fell. You weren't paying attention, were you? Huh. I tell you what, let's go over this because I'm not going to set this foot every week. Now, are you going to start watching where you walk? Can you imagine drilling someone like that? Isn't it wonderful that in most cases we can go to an emergency room and they take us where we are and they strive to bring us back to where we need to be? Friends, I want you, those of you that know just off the top of your head the story of the prodigal son, I want you to think about that father looking down the road with open arms to welcome the son back home. How did he treat that son? There's our biblical example. That's how we know what our attitude ought to be. 
We're not there to stir up strife. Well, I tell you what, if I'm going to go to them, the first thing I have to do is I have to make them feel like they're low down. I have to make them feel guilty. I have to convict them of their sins. What did the father do in the prodigal son as that individual was returning home? The father did not talk about the sin. The father talked about the son coming home. The father talked about the robe. The father talked about the shoes. The father talked about killing the fatted calf. The father talked about inviting the friends in and having a celebration because that which was dead is now alive. That which was lost is now found. I'm not suggesting to you that we overlook sin. I'm not suggesting to you that we put our head in the sand. But I am suggesting to you that our attitude must be one that does not generate strife. It generates and it communicates love and compassion and a forgiving spirit as one repents and as one comes back. I've stepped into some shoes that are a lot bigger than what I can wear if I think that it's my job to go out and to judge everyone before we start talking about our desire for them to come home. And so the first thing that he says is don't get up and mixed up into strife. Questions and disputes that leads to strife, don't ask them. Don't answer them. In other words, if we could say, God, what's one of the first things you want me to know as I strive this year to try to bring somebody back and he would say, the first thing I want you to know is don't go to fight. The second thing, very similar as we look there in verse 24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Now, for him to say, don't quarrel is enough said if it's found in the Bible. But think of the, the impact that it has when it says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Well, that just makes it even a greater impact. If I truly am going to be a servant of the Lord, one that's going out to do the Lord's work as a child of God, I can't have that spirit of quarreling. We are not striving to win an argument or a debate. We're striving to win a soul. And if at any time in my mind that I'm thinking when I am approaching someone, oh man, I believe I can prove them wrong. I believe I can win this one. That is the wrong spirit every time. We're not trying to prove that we're right. I hope that every one of us in this congregation can say, I never discuss with someone else what I believe. Because what that means is you want to prove that you're right. I hope every one of us, when we discuss what is right, demands that the conversation and the study stays on the level of what God says. I don't know how many times folks have asked me the question, but what do you believe about this? And I'm not saying to you that I have everything figured out, but I do believe that the right answer in this case is to say, you know, I could tell you what I believe about this, but that doesn't matter. 
because what I believe is not a standard. And the truth is, what you believe is not a standard. But that's a good question, that the topic that you're asking. So let's go back and see what God says about this. And then let's both submit to it. Friends, quarreling means it's my belief against your belief, and we're about to take the gloves off. When we love the soul, we don't want to argue. We want to show them what God's Word says. Give them time to study it. Give them time to meditate upon it. Pray fervently that they'll submit their life to God's will and that we too will submit our life to God's will. Notice the third thing that he says as we look still here in verse 24. He says, to be able to teach. As we think about this of teaching... We cannot teach what we do not know. And so it's very important that if we are going to help individuals move closer in their walk and their relationship to God, that we're going to have to know what that way is. We're going to have to know God's direction. The verses leading up to this text, of course, contribute to this text because it's all in context. So let's drop back to verse 15 and notice this. And I'm going to begin reading it in the New King James. It says, be diligent. The King James, if you'll remember, and you may have it, says, study. So in other words, it's a diligent study. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to make sure that as we approach individuals, the only thing that we want to help them do is move closer in their relationship with God. And the only way that they can do that is to have God's will revealed to them. And so therefore, if we have the opportunity to sit down and to study with them, we need to make sure that we have rightly divided the word of truth. We need to know the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We need to know how to take a verse and study it in the context of which it's written. We need to make sure that we don't divide a paragraph so as to make it say what we want to say, but to drop it back so that we put it in the context so we know this is what God has said. You see, the point that Paul's making about all of this, it's not about us. It's all about that person, their soul, and their relationship with God. Now notice the next. He says, be patient. I one time asked a man that I think is a tremendous soul winner. And I said, do you ever reach the point that you just write someone off? You think you've done all that you can do, and, and so you just have to kind of wash your hands and write them off. He said, no. I may put someone on the back burner for years, but he says, I've never written anyone off. Patience. You know, people that I know and love personally that have fallen away from the Lord, you know when I want them to come back? I was just thinking as I was talking to one of my old friends the other night on the phone about another friend. And during that conversation, I thought, I wish he'd come back to the Lord now. When we love someone, that's what we want. We want it to be now. But you know what? It may not be now. 
It may be six months from now, and it may be a year from now. The question is, will we be there with open eyes, ready to help them and ready to support them whenever they are willing to make that move? We can't force people. We can't twist their arms. We can't beat them up enough verbally that finally we'll make them do something that they're not ready to do. Now, we could flip that same coin over and say, but preacher, they're gambling with their soul. They absolutely are, but we can't make them change. The only thing we can do is we can be there to encourage them. We can be there to support them. And the only way that we can consistently be there is to be patient. If it's not this year, maybe it's next year. If it's not when they get married, maybe it's when they have their first child. Or maybe it's when they're in the emergency room with a family member. Or maybe it's when they're at the funeral home with a family member. But the point is that there are times in individuals' lives where they are much more likely to come back to God than at other times. And if we truly love someone, we are praying for that time. And we are looking with open eyes for that time that they are ready to come back and we will be their greatest supporter during that time. Now notice we go into verse 25. He says, in humility. When we go to that individual... We must go in humility. I want to encourage you, and I don't say this to to sound um, like a smart aleck or sarcastic. I say it to try to make a point, but also I, I really believe it to be true. If you can humbly pray for an individual... That from the depths of your being, before you go to talk with them, all you want is you want their soul to be right with God. That's all you want. You're not trying to make some kind of point that, hey, I'm better than you. Hey, look at me, I've remained faithful and you haven't. Hey, I know all the sins you've committed and I'm going to hang them over. But if we can honestly, to the depths of our being, pray for their soul, for their life, and for their decision, then we're ready to go in humility to approach that person. It's dangerous for all of us to make those phone calls and to write those letters when really what we're wanting to do is kind of stick it to the person. That's not humility. Humility says, I'm just here to encourage you. I love you. And I want you to come home. All of that is leading up to 25 where he says, correcting those who are in opposition. They've moved to the world. They've left the Lord. They've moved to the world. They've left the Lord's church. They're in opposition to what is right. And the terms here shows us they're not thinking clearly. And so we move this lesson to a conclusion by looking at those two phrases in 26. These two phrases, to me, just, they say a lot. Look in 26 where he says, "...and that they may come to their senses." And then the second phrase, "...and escape the snares of the devil." In other words, what this person needs to do 
is they need to come to their senses, which going back even to the original language, it's the same way you would word a drunk sobering up. In other words, they're not thinking clearly. Something is intoxicated, at least when it comes to their reasoning. Satan has, has pulled the wool over their eyes. Satan has caused them to believe a lie. And what they need is they need to just start thinking clearly again. Now, maybe our first thought is, well, if once someone knew the way perfectly, and I don't mean they were perfect, I'm saying they obeyed the truth. If once someone knew the way, and they lived it, and then they left it, how could they really not know the way again? Can I remind you of a quick story? You remember that awesome character in the Old Testament named David? And you remember the day that Nathan had to sober him up? Do you remember when he committed adultery? And not only adultery, but adultery with one of his mighty men's wife? And not only that, he then brought the man in and helped him get drunk. And then had the enemy, in a sense, to execute him. He was intoxicated in his sin. Apparently, as hard as it is to understand, at this point he didn't feel guilt. The chapter starts by saying, the Lord sent Nathan. And you remember that story that Nathan told David? The rich man had herds and flocks, in other words, cattle and sheep. The other neighbor just had a, a little female lamb. That's all he had was her. A visitor passes through town, stays with this rich man, but he wouldn't kill one of his own flock. He goes over and takes the only animal that this man has that he raised like a lap lamb. The Bible says ate off his table. David was so angry. He wanted to know who the man was and that the man would have to repay fourfold. And Nathan looks him in the eye and says, You are the man. What was he doing there? He was sobering David. He was bringing David to his senses. He wasn't there in pride and arrogance. He wasn't there to stir up strife. He wasn't there to quarrel with him. He was there to wake David up. And it did. Why? Because David was being held in the snares of Satan. The traps of Satan. Tonight, are we satisfied if someone we know and we love is being held in the snares of Satan? I hope none of us can live with the fact that we could know that and not do anything about it. Something's wrong with me if I refuse to act. And I know of individuals in that condition. What those people need is a support to come back. They need someone that's going to love them. Someone that's going to help them come to their senses. Someone that knows enough about God's Word that they can prop properly direct them. 
historians have said as they have evidence to back up what they say on the Oregon Trail. Many of those that traveled that were trying to arrive at their destination before winter. There was a lot of sickness along the way, and at first they stopped for long ritual-type funerals. But as more and more people grew sick, they realized they were never going to be able to continue this same pace of taking this much time for the dead. And so it even got to the point that when someone was sick and they knew that the person wasn't going to make it, they left them behind with a watcher. They would go ahead and dig the grave, and this person would watch their own grave being dug. Then as the wagon train pulled out, one individual would stay back and watch. Their job was when the person deceased to lay them in the grave and bury them. Those same historians said that they began to die in such a number and winter was coming upon them so quickly that towards the end, it was obvious that they buried some of the dead, well, before they were dead. Let's not do that. Let's not give up on someone. Let's not turn back. Let's do everything that we can do to bring back those that were once right in the middle of us. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing. Take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe. It will joy and comfort give you. Take it in where Precious name, oh, I see.
be seated. A great young man has come forward tonight, uh, Trey Waldrop, and, uh, and Trey just told me that he feels like lately he's been uh, living on the wrong side of the fence and, and that uh, he just wants to get right with God tonight. And uh, so let's, let's go to prayer. Let's go to God in prayer on Trey's behalf tonight. My Father in heaven, Father, thank you so much for, for loving us. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made in sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And Father, we, we thank you so much that uh, you forgive us when we fail you. Father, we, we know that as all of us try, that, that many times we fall short. And Father, we thank you for your mercy and, and your grace. And uh, Father, forgiving us when we, when we fail, Lord. Father, tonight we, we come to you and, and pray for Trey. Father, uh, we love Trey, and, and we know that uh, he has a great heart and that he wants to please you with his life each day. Father, we, we know that it, it's hard sometimes, Lord, to, to, to do what's right and to, to stand up for what's right, Lord. And we just pray that you might give Trey the strength and, and give him the courage to do what's right, Lord. Father, we, we thank you so much for, for all of his friends that support him and, and Father, for his, his wonderful family that loves him and encourages him, Lord. And, and Father, we just pray that, that we might each day bear one another's burdens and each day that we might look to encourage one another as we all strive to be more like Christ. Father, I just thank you for loving us and for watching over us and protecting us. And just help Trey and help each one of us to be stronger each day. Not be afraid to stand up for what's right, stand up against the devil. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you haven't been able to take the Lord's Supper today, it has been prepared in the fellowship hall. And as we sing number 567, if you would make your way there, there will be some men there to serve you. 567. Let's stand and sing this together. Restore my spirit, Lord, and be
everyone with us this evening. If you haven't already filled out an attendance card, let me encourage you to do that and to pass those to the aisle, and our young soldiers will pick those up as we sing number 38 and 39. 38 and 39. After we sing these songs together, uh, we'll be led in our closing prayer. Our God is an awesome God who reigns from heaven above Father, from the depths of our heart for the great lessons that we've heard this day from your word, and we pray that as we leave, we will be smart enough to put them into our lives and grow closer to you and truly walk in the steps of our master. We're so thankful, Father, for this young man that has come forth this night, and we know, Father, that you have heard Phil's prayer and that you will answer it, and you will help him. And Father, I pray that all of us will also encourage this young man and all others like it. For we know in any assembly of your people that there are people who are outside of the ark of safety, and may we do everything within our power to bring them inside that ark so that truly we will have a great reunion one day with you in heaven. Go with us now, Father, as we separate. Help us to learn to love you more, to be more like Jesus, to love each other more, and to do whatever we can in your vineyard to help us to maybe pay back just a little bit of the suffering that Jesus suffered for us as he forgave our sins and Put us in a right relationship with you. Go with us now, Father. Help us to truly be your children. Through the name of Jesus, we pray.